I wonder if you've ever bought a product only to be curious about the warning label that it came with. Um, I bought some crayons a while back. I don't know if you can see in the top corner, in bold letters there, the the product proudly reads gluten-free. I want to say if you're eating crayons in large numbers, I'd suggest gluten is probably not your biggest issue. Just a guess. Uh, Or this on a washing machine. To reduce risk of serious injury, do not put any person in this washer. I hadn't thought of it, but now I'm wondering who I can squeeze into my next load. Or this on a wheelbarrow, not intended for highway use. (laughs) I'll admit it hadn't occurred to me, but suddenly this is a fun youth group activity, don't you think? Now, before we pass judgment on the special humans who made these warnings necessary, when I come across a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, suddenly I want to reach out and touch it. I could be the only one. Now, why are we like this? What's gone wrong? Why do we react against sensible commands even when we know the command is for our good? Why are we like that? Romans 7 is going to address those questions. It's also going to provide the solution. But I want to say to you the answers that Romans 7 will give are going to give us pause for some careful self-reflection. I want you to be assured there's good news here. But the character assessment we receive in Romans 7 is going to leave a lot to be desired. And to understand this passage, we're going to have to hold two truths together at the same time. We just heard from Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And while the Lord's law is perfect, we are not. And when the sinful rebellious human heart collides with God's good law, the results are entirely negative, which means while perfect, God's law cannot make a sinner good. Actually, that was never the law's role. On the contrary, we need to be released from our obligation to the law And we need to be bound instead to the Lord Jesus Christ because only then are we going to be able to start serving in the new way from the heart. I'm going to pray and we're going to take a closer look at those first few verses of chapter 7. I invite you to join me. Those last words of Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and may the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so, Father, we ask now that your spirit would be our teacher and would we indeed have humble and teachable hearts to receive your word and to respond in joyful obedience. And we ask that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, just to flag up front, I was over-ambitious planning this part of our series. So tonight, I'm only going to cover the first six verses of chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. That's going to be coming attractions for next week. But let's get our bearings. The Apostle Paul is our author. He's writing to Christians in Rome, people he's never met. Give or take, Paul has devoted the first third of this letter making sure that we understand a person is saved, that is, saved from God's judgment, saved into God's kingdom, 
A person is saved by faith, that is by putting their trust in what? In the, the perfect life, the sin-bearing death, and the life-giving resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through him, chapter 5, we learn sinners have peace with God and rich welcome into his kingdom. But from give or take again, chapter 6 or so onwards, the issue becomes, well, now what? How do we live as God's forgiven people? The small church in Rome that received this letter, it was made up of a, a, a mix of people. There would have been Romans, obviously, but Greeks too. And there would have also been people who've come to saving faith in Jesus from a Jewish background, people who would have known the Jewish law, what we call Old Testament law. Now, when I use the word law tonight, I want you to think Ten Commandments. And all of the other laws and regulations that you find, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus. You might also think of Jesus' summary of the summary of the law when he's challenged, which is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbour as yourself. These regulations were given to God's chosen nation, Israel, And these laws were intended both to govern but also to set aside God's people that they would look different to all of the other nations. But since Christians are saved by faith in the work of Jesus and not through compliance to Jewish law, the question is, well, what role does the law play now, if any? And in context, that was a revolutionary question. So look with me from verse 1. Don't you know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, Jewish Christians in other words, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Okay, so here's the principle. The law has authority, but only while you live. Now, having laid out that principle, we now get an illustration of that. Follow from verse 2. For example, by law... A married woman is bound to her husband as long as she's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. I think that's pretty much expected. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, that's bad, she's called an adulteress and vice versa. But if her husband dies, that's sad, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Okay. Our world takes a different view. I accept that. But for us, this biblical pattern of marriage should be totally uncontroversial. As I said when we covered Romans 1 last year, in God's good design, marriage is the safe place for the godly expression of sexual intimacy. One biological man, one biological woman, bound together exclusively as long as they both shall live. Anything else would be sexual immorality and, in this example, the sin of adultery. And so by analogy then, Paul draws a link and he makes the point that God's people were, as it were, married to the law, contractually bound to the law. The biblical word is covenant. But unfortunately, this was not a happy marriage. Now, if your experience of marriage has been less than ideal, this may be a painful topic, but even still, married or single, we can all agree that it's right to uphold God's good gift of marriage. 
But actually, this passage isn't about marriage or divorce. If you want a a more broad coverage of that, you could go back to my sermon from Matthew chapter 5. Here, Paul's simply making the point. As a woman is bound to her husband, so too God's people were bound to the law. But sadly, our relationship with God's law was terrible. For the simple reason that by instinct, by nature, you and I, we're lawbreakers. Remember, wet paint don't touch. So, odd as it sounds when you first hear it, instead of making us better people, when you apply the law more and more, all it does is lead to greater and greater disobedience, verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, that simply means before you became a Christian, the sinful passions aroused by the law at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. If I can say this respectfully, God's law brought out the worst in us. And so in case you think that the solution is to shout the Ten Commandments at people as if that's going to make the world a better place, I just urge you to quietly rethink because more law will not help. And that alerts us to the reason why Paul uses marriage as his illustration. Because when a spouse dies, the obligation is finished. Not only is the obligation finished to that first relationship, you're free now to be bound to another. Okay, that's all of the scaffolding. Now Paul applies the principle. Look at verse 4. Say, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. I want to say to you, this verse is full of good news and it's full of practical application because guilty though we are, what do we learn here? The innocent, obedient Christ takes the place of lawbreakers. He dies according to the full force of the law and in doing so absorbs the just punishment that we so rightly deserve. So if you're here tonight and hand on heart cannot say that you're a Christian, I want you to forget everything else I say and consider this. Without Jesus, you are under the penalty of sin and you face the wrath of God. But Jesus invites you to a radically different future. Of course, you've got to come to him on his terms, admitting your guilt, acknowledging your need of his forgiveness. But do that and according to promise, you will have peace with God. But to those of us here tonight who are Christians, I want you to notice the practical dimensions of our dying to the law. There are two. Look at verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. How did we die to the law? Through the body of Christ. Well, that gives you an indication of the cost. And what are the results? Number one, that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead. So this new relationship is going to be eternal. And then the second result, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And so if you think of previously, instead of bearing fruit for death, that's what we were like. Now bound to Jesus, it's possible for us to bear good fruit. And so if Christians together, we can bear good fruit to God now, the question, well, that becomes, in what ways are you actively seeking 
to grow in obedience to the Lord Jesus, to the one to whom you are now bound. The difficulty is I can't answer that question for you. I could have a go at it, but all I'd be doing is projecting my Jesus-shaped change agenda onto you. And the way I need to change is going to be different. The fruit I am called to produce is going to be different. Nevertheless, the question still stands. In what ways are you seeking to grow in obedience to the one to whom you are now bound? But if you haven't thought of it, your objection should be, hang on, I thought I was free from the law. But now you're saying I'm obligated to obey Jesus. It sounds like this whole bearing fruit thing is Paul's way of sneaking the law back in. Well, not so, verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law and here's the result, that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All right, well, Paul used an illustration from marriage, so I'm going to risk one of my own. Remember, the issue, if I'm not bound by the law anymore, well, how do I relate to God now? How do I relate to him? 9,487 days ago, I married Rachel. 21st of June, 1997. Uh, so long ago, it's black and white. We did have electricity, but not the internet back then. On that day, I became legally obligated to my wife. Literally, in the service, we signed the contract. Yet in all that time, I can't remember a single occasion where I've thought in terms of my contractual obligations. I've learned a lot about responsibility, but contractual obligations... Now, to some of the youngsters here, don't mishear me. The written contract of your marriage is very important, much more than people who will say it's just a piece of paper, not so. But I think we can all agree that no marriage thrives where you relate through imposed legalities and enforced duty. A healthy marriage is a place where you serve out of love. A healthy marriage is a place where you might even go so far as to say you obey out of love. Now, the analogy begins to break down because my marriage was a coming together of equals. You are deeply loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are not his equal. Nevertheless, there is a similarity because while formally bound to Jesus, we don't serve him according to the written code. We don't relate to him on the basis of a contract. We serve Jesus as an expression of love where obedience is an outworking of our thanksgiving to him. And so then, what do we do with the law? Well, we've arrived at the Taylor Swift moment in the book of Romans. You don't believe me yet, but let me make the case. Paul says... We've been released from the law. Having died to the law, the law is no longer our master. We're free now to be bound to the Lord Jesus. And let's be honest, most of what I've said about the law tonight has been negative. So the logical thing to do would be to chuck out God's law. It doesn't do us any good. It only produces disobedience. We're better off without it. But ask yourself, 
in our failed marriage to the law, and it was, our failed marriage to the law, Psalm 19 reminds us, remember, that the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect. Who was the guilty party? Were we victims of a wicked, oppressive marriage partner? Paul doesn't seem to think so. If you glance down at verse 12, he goes so far as to describe the law as holy, righteous and good. And so, the Taylor Swift moment. She speaks as a prophetess, better than she knows, I think, summing up why our relationship to the law is so hopeless. In her song, Antihero, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. There's a bunch of people here nodding, saying, yeah, I always knew he was the problem. No, it's you too. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Or as Paul would say at verse 5, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, before becoming a Christian, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Look at that carefully and what you'll notice is that the law stirs up sinful passions that were already there. That means loading you up with more stone tablets of law. It's not going to help. You won't be able to keep it. In fact, it will simply provoke more disobedience because the law cannot transform sinners into saints. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And with that realisation, God's law has done its job. Awkward as it might be, The law exposes us for what we are. We are sinners and we are caught in this hopeless cycle of disobedience and guilt and shame and more disobedience and more guilt and more shame. And so we don't need more law. What we need is a new heart. A new heart where the instinct is not to recoil from law but instead to embrace it, joyfully even. And thanks be to God, this new heart promised long ago through the prophets, it's arrived now through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gift of the Holy Spirit. I could take you to Ezekiel, I could take you to Isaiah, I'll take you to Jeremiah and it's worth quoting him at length. He writes this, while God's people are in exile in Babylon. It's a terrible time for the people of God. And yet consider this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, a new contract, a new agreement. Think of the words of the Lord Jesus during our Holy Communion service. This is my blood of the new covenant. Shed for you and for many, he would say. Verse 32, well, this new covenant, it won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of, when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Think about it. When did the people of God receive the law? Did they receive the law while they were in Egypt and do such a good job of keeping it that the Lord said, well, well done, I'll save you out of Egypt now. No, he saves them out of Egypt and only when they are safely delivered does he then give them the law, this is how you live as my people. 
Well, this new covenant, it won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. The cost of sin is always personal. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. Bound to the law, with the law as our masters, we were prisoners of condemnation, hopelessly trapped, hostile to God, condemned and helpless, but not anymore. Bound to Jesus, I want you to go into this week with renewed enthusiasm, asking God to lead you in the new way of obedience, that you might serve him from the heart as the forgiven children that you are, that you might bear fruit to him, the one who has set you free. Do this and then we can say along with the psalmist in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. I'm going to pray. Why don't you join me? Father, we do thank you for your patience towards us. And even when we're poor at remembering who you've made us to be in the Lord Jesus, you nevertheless treat us with love. We pray this week that you'd give us opportunity to have those Moments before people where we might be genuinely obedient from the heart and that our lives would be a genuine offering of thanksgiving and praise. So train us to love your law and train us to live it. And give us that new heart that we would bring glory and honour to the Lord Jesus and we pray that in his name. Amen.